0: If you got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it or grab your Luke study guide and turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Before we get going, let me remind you, uh, Citadel Square members, of our prayer night this evening. Uh, we mentioned this at member meeting, but tonight is going to be uh, the first and probably several prayer meetings where we're going to dedicate our time and conversation and thoughts toward the uh, what's happening in the Southern Baptist Convention at large and what it means for our affiliation with that organization and that uh, group of churches. Uh, so that's happening tonight at 6 o'clock. I'd encourage you to be there, bring your prayers, your questions. We're going to spend time seeking God's face uh, for what he would have us to do here as a church. So we're, our process as elders has been really diligent and patient over the course of um, that report that came out several months ago. If you remember, two member meetings ago, we had that conversation. Uh, And we've just been patiently exploring conversations with a variety of church leaders, denominational leaders, our pillar network leaders, uh, people in this church who are particularly affected by our relationship with the SBC, and wanted to put that in front of you to say, hey, we we want uh, our church to be really unified around that. So a a large part of that is our prayers and intentional conversation around that beginning tonight at 6 p.m. down in the chapel, unless we have such a run on the prayer meeting that we have to come into this space. I see a couple of you laughing at that joke. Uh, but we'll do that. Uh, we'll spend time talking, praying, and thinking about what God has for us together as a church. So put that on your calendar. Would love for you to be there and to join us uh, for that. All right, Luke. Y'all there? Did you find it? Luke chapter one. We, we began this Luke series last week looking at uh, Luke's very intentional gathering of information and gathering of resources of particular stories in a time and place that began the New Testament story of Jesus Christ. So we saw in Luke and in, that, um, in those first four verses in the prologue really to the, to the entire book that Luke was a man who was writing to an individual named Theophilus to give him great certainty about the things that he had been taught. So we saw that Luke begins his uh, compiling of the narrative of Jesus Christ with somebody in mind, with someone who uh, in Luke's day and age needs to be encouraged, who may face the temptation to doubt the things that he's been taught. And that's where we ended last week talking about the diligent pursuit of understanding God's commitment to give us certainty through the things that he has written down, right? Right? Well, this week, we enter into Luke's first narrative section. Uh, And in this section, we're going to look at Luke chapter 1, verses 5, down to about verse 25 there. And we're going to see Luke's academic, data-driven mind uh, compile for us the details related to a story. If you've ever had a significant event in your life, Uh, You can remember things that are very peculiar to that time. If you've ever been, I had a car wreck uh, when I was in college on my way back to college, and I can tell you the temperature, the smell, the color of the car, the truck that was in front of me, the cops who came and made fun of me for driving too fast in the snow. I can give you vivid details of that event that happened in my life. And a lot of you probably have stories like that in your own lives of significant moments where you saw something happen, maybe even spiritually, where you had moments in your life where God showed up and something happened and you know the song that was on the radio, you knew the conversations that were happening, you knew the shirt that you were wearing. Well, those details serve to build out stories for us. They make up the stories of our lives. The significant moments in our lives often come with very peculiar details that are hard to falsify. And what you're going to see here in the beginning of Luke's story, Matthew begins uh, with the genealogy of Christ, which you'll have here in Luke in a couple chapters. Mark begins with Jesus' public ministry. John begins where? In the beginning was the what? Was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John takes you all the way back to the beginning. Luke's beginning shows up in the life of two particular individuals, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And this text is really about two big ideas. The first one is unanswered prayers. Is there anybody in here who has prayers that are as of yet unanswered? Now, look around. You see everybody's hands go up. You still have uh, stories on your mind right now, even as I say that. You have unanswered prayers, places where you have not seen God show up. And that is what this text is about in a very large part. And there's no greater opportunity for the temptation for doubt to creep in that we looked at last week. Remember that? There's no greater temptation for doubt to creep in than when you have unanswered prayers. Isn't that true? where you ask questions like, God, what is it that you're doing? God, this season doesn't make sense. God, it feels like you're really far away. It doesn't seem like you're paying attention or you have a plan or God, how in the world are you going to make sense of this season in my life that feels like I'm in a cul-de-sac, that feels like I've hit a dead end, that feels like there's no way that you can redeem this thing. And the other big idea that you're going to see in Luke chapter 1 here is God's peculiar faithfulness to his word. Because when we face unanswered prayers and we come to the scriptures and look at what God is doing, we need to be reminded that all throughout the scriptures, God has a plan, God has a purpose, and God's providence leads the way, right? So when I read the biblical accounts of who God is and what he is doing, I'm reminded that we need a greater perspective than our own personal experience, don't we? We need somebody above the story who is able to look at, at the whole creation, to be able to look at all of our lives and to begin to make sense of the particular seasons in which we live. Well, that's this text. There's no other better text... Where you can watch divine sovereign providence touch human inability and frailty than this text right here, it's incredible. I've been meditating on this all week, and I'm like a, a coffee maker. You know, the percolating. The blah 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 blah. That's my mind right now. I'm so excited to get into this uh, with you here this morning. So let's pause and pray, ask God for His grace, and then we'll jump in here see what He has to say to us. Father, we pray again for your grace to us. I pray again for people even who've walked in here this morning who may feel at the end of their rope when they've been praying and they've been praying and they've been praying and they don't get the answer that they want. Where the seasons of their lives don't make sense, where they're wondering where are you and what are you doing and it seems like you've forgotten them. I pray that this text would encourage them this morning. I pray that through the few minutes that we spend meditating on the beauty of your intentionality in the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth, that we would gain great confidence in the unanswered prayer seasons of our own lives. Father, you're so good to us to give us stories like this, to show us what you're like and that you know where we are. So I pray that those truths would come off the page to us here this morning, that you would minister to our hearts through the power of the Spirit, that you would draw our hearts and minds to Jesus Christ. And as we prepare our hearts even to celebrate communion, that you would remind us of your goodness and your love to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Y'all there? Let's go. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. Now, you would expect Luke to begin in a particular time and particular place, wouldn't you? He's a little bit of a data nerd. And Luke pauses in this story to give you a particular king that is a king in the world of history that you can go and look up. It's King Herod. He reigned from about 37 B.C. to about 4 A.D., He was an incredibly evil and politically minded and manipulative individual. He exacted heavy taxation upon the people of Israel to make sure that his building programs went through and got accomplished the way he wanted them to. Incredibly savvy in construction in the things that he was doing to advance his own political career at the expense of the Jewish people. So he is not a popular individual to the Jews. In short, he's a bad guy. And Luke begins his story. He gives this encouraging moment to Theophilus to remind Theophilus that he can go to a particular time, a particular place under a particular king to begin his story. Look at the next part. There was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. The priesthood is broken up into 24 different courses or divisions like this. So we're introduced to another individual, not only Herod who's a political leader, but we have a religious leader in Zechariah who has the the religious Jewish heritage along with his position. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, we know where she comes from too, we know her Heritage. The Levites were recommended that the Levites would marry within the priestly caste, the priestly clan. So that you have a couple who comes from the religious priestly line all the way back to the Exodus. And her name was Elizabeth. Now just in this verse, I don't want you to miss that Luke's uh, particularities come out for us in the way he writes. This story begins with very precise historical details. He says, I'm writing to you about this story, this beginning of the narrative of Jesus Christ to put you and place you at a particular time in certain political, I'm sorry, particular political realities. I'm going to put you in a particular geography of Judea so that you would know, Theopolis, that we're talking about a zip code that you know about an area code where you've made phone calls. This isn't a long time ago in a faraway place. This isn't Frodo and the Shire. This is as if you were getting a letter from somebody in North Charleston. I've been there. I know that mayor. I know the roads. I know the places that they grew up. I know the political realities and the religious realities of the day. So Luke gives us great data to be able to place this and locate this in a particular time, in a particular place, with a particular king, with a particular couple, who's according to a particular heritage, and practicing according to particular religious customs. You with me so far? Is there anything about this verse that gives you a sense that God uh, doesn't know what's happening? Is there anything about this verse that gives you a sense that Luke is just winging it? No, he begins with particular data. Verse 6, let's talk about this couple. They were both righteous before God. Walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. What's this? So if Herod's a bad guy, who are these people? They're the good guys. These are individuals who have a good relationship with God. They have a right standing with God. Blameless just means that they handle their sin according to the way that God has said that sin is supposed to be handled. They're faithful, they're diligent, they're obedient. They go to the sacrifices. They uh, participate in the day of atonement. They have participation in the daily and the evening, uh, the morning and evening sacrifices. They are in the religious life of the people of Israel and God looks down and says, they are righteous, they are faithful, they are blameless, they are the good guys. But we're about to be introduced to the tension in the story that drives this whole story That we have the people in a particular time and in a particular place who God says are righteous and blameless, but there's a particular problem. Verse 7. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, not having a child in the ancient Near East, this is uh, kind of a biblical theme that moves throughout all of your Old Testament, but not having a child for a woman was considered a source of great embarrassment, great shame, even to the point of considering that God had somehow uh, exhibited a divine displeasure toward her in her life. In fact, if you move all the way down to the end of our passage here today, you'll see how she describes her childlessness. She describes it as reproach. She describes her life now in the midst of this community of God's people while she is simultaneously faithful and righteous and walking blamelessly. She also at the same time has what I think we would consider a social stigma. So here's Elizabeth walking faithfully, righteous before God, And we're introduced to this couple where you almost would expect that this couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, are not faithful people, but they're unfaithful people. That barrenness is now a consequence of their lack of faithfulness. But the reason we have verse 6 before verse 7 is to let you, the reader, know, is to let me, the reader, know that this particular issue in her life is not a result of God's divine displeasure, is it? This woman has walked faithfully all throughout the course of her life faithful with God, righteous before God, blameless before God and also has a particular issue in her life that would cause skepticism among her peers that would cause people to look at her with a side eye and to think she must not be doing something right she must have a problem in her life for God to look upon her and not give her a kid how long? for the entire course of her life. So, these two verses, I think just as we begin, for us to talk about unanswered prayer, just the reality of life not being the way that we want it to be. Is anybody's life exactly the way you want it to be? Yeah, you laugh. No, it's not. Neither is mine. It's not exactly the way that I would do it. But in part, this story goes to show us that people can walk with God faithfully and have a lifetime, chronic, unanswered prayer. Amen? Now, you older saints who who are in the room, you know that this is true. Amen? There There are places in life where God has not come through on prayers that you have prayed. And maybe you've prayed them for a long time. Maybe you've prayed them season after season after season after season. And let me remind you then that unanswered prayers aren't necessarily a sign of God's divine displeasure on your life. Amen? Amen. Matt, We got to talk now because this is important for people in the room who carry that unspoken temptation in their heart. There are people in here who are praying and praying and praying and praying and praying and they haven't heard from God and they don't know where he is and they don't know what he's doing and they feel like God has forgotten them. God doesn't care. God's mad at them. God's uh, a ruthless God in the sky who's making them walk through pain that they don't deserve. But in this story, we at least can have a category of walking faithful with God and having chronic, lifelong, unanswered no's to our prayers. Do you have that category? But for us, the reader, as we read this story and we look at this, you should have, something should ping your memory. Are there any other stories in the Old Testament of women who are barren? Are there any other stories that you could go back to? You know, when I was doing research for this, one Jewish commentator said every single time in the Old Testament when a woman is said to be barren, God gives her a kid. You know that? So with you Bible in hand, when you encounter this story of Zechariah and Elizabeth being blessed, being righteous, being blameless, being obedient, yet at the same time barren. You are on your tiptoes, aren't you? Literarily speaking. You're waiting and leaning forward to see what is it that God is going to do with this faithful, righteous couple in the days of Herod, a wicked king. What plans does God have at work that we don't know yet? Now, it's hard to teach a text that's so familiar, isn't it? Because you know what's coming. But step into the story just for a minute and consider that month after month and year after year through the childbearing years and into her old age, she has had that conversation with Zechariah. And she has said, is this the month? No. Is this the month? No. And month after month after month after month after year after year after year after year after year, she has heard what? No, no, no. No. Verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty. Now, you wouldn't know this just by reading this. The, the course of priests is about 18,000 priests. Let me just break it down real quick. Within the division, there's about four to nine families. Individuals would come to the temple to do their service, but they would only come two weeks out of every year. So you've got Zechariah and Elizabeth of a particular division who just so happened to be on duty one of the single, one of the two weeks possible out of the entire year. His division just so happens to be on duty. Verse 9, according to the custom of the priesthood, which means this is something the priesthood has done for a very, very long time. And you get the sense in Zechariah's line of work that I leave what I'm currently doing and I'm putting on all of my gear and I head down to the temple and I'm going to do my week long of service and then I'm going to p- take my stuff off and go back to doing whatever I'm doing week- you know, throughout the other 50 weeks of the year. And now here comes Zechariah, all dressed up as a priest, ready to do what he's going to do, and he's got to go and do the custom that is totally a part of his job. It's something they've been doing the entire time. According to this custom, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense, which means I've got to go in, I've got to put my name in a hat, whatever the thing they do to choose by lot. They rustle it up, they put it out, they go, Yahtzee, it is Zechariah's turn. You play Yahtzee? Yahtzee was a big heron staple in my family growing up. <laughs> Zechariah, you're the guy. Now, Zechariah, there's only one of two times that you are going to burn incense. You're either going to do it in the morning or you're going to do it in the evening, before the morning sacrifice and before the, uh, after the evening sacrifice. So, according to the custom, this thing was so rare that you could be a priest your entire life and never get the call. Not only that, if you've gotten the call before, they take your name out of the hat and you never get to do it again. So this is a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Zechariah to burn incense before the Lord. He was chosen by Lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, if you don't know anything about burning incense, burning incense both from the Old Testament and the New has to do with prayer. It has to do with the prayers of God's people rising before the presence of God. They would go into the holy place where there was a lampstand, there was the bread, and there was the incense laver or the incense pan. And they would take uh, fire from the altar where the sacrifice was. They bring it in to the holy place. They put it in there, the fire, along with the sweet-smelling incense, and the incense would rise and would be a symbol of God's uh, God's people's prayers to him. So here's Zechariah with a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. According to a totally random lot, who just so happens to be there on one of the two weeks that his assert that his division is on duty. Verse 10, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the what? At the hour. Where did this text start in verse 5? In the days. Where are we in verse 10? Down to the hour with an individual who just so happened to have his division on duty so that he was there in one particular week to burn incense that he was picked by lot at random to come in during the evening sacrifice and the whole group of people are outside at a particular hour. You see God's precision? Do you see how nothing in this story is haphazard? Nothing in this story is random. Luke has brought us into the days of a king in a particular place with a particular priest married to a particular woman whose particular division was on duty at a particular time who got chosen to do a particular task According to a particular religious custom, down to the very particular hour. See, a lot of times when we, uh, why why does Luke do this? Because Luke wants you to know that there's no aspect of your life that is outside of God's knowledge, awareness, and control. None. You believe that? Isn't that frustrating? Be honest. God knows all the way down to the seatbelt you put on. God knows all the way down to the socks that you wear. God knows all the way down to the person who cuts you off on the way to work that day. God knows all the way down, I'm gonna keep using driving examples, I guess, all the way down to the parking spot that you park in, all the way down to the relationship with your boss and the kids that you have and the clothes that they wear and the places they go and the sports that they play, amen? every single thing all the way down so that you would know that in the context of this life that feels so mundane in the context of this life where there are unanswered prayers does God know where I live does God know the job I have does God know the rhythms I inhabit does God know the customs of the day does God know the political landscape of our moment everything all the way down to the moment all the way down to the hour verse 11 we're going to run out of time I'm only on verse 11 There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. The last reported, recorded, angelic visitation is 600 years prior. And it wasn't even an angelic visitation, it was an angelic vision for Zechariah. And here's another Zechariah, 600 years later who encounters this angel. Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him, which is normal when you meet an angel, especially this one. Verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Now here's what I want you to see. This, is, this has confounded some interpreters and commentators. This phrase, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Now if you're a good Jewish priest, what you would be doing during this time is stepping into the most holy place, I'm sorry, the holy place, you would be in front of the most holy place with the curtain that shields you from the Ark of the Covenant. And as you are doing your duty, or placing replacing the bread and lighting the menorah and trimming the wicks and burning the incense, you would also be praying. And typically you'd be praying for the sins of the people, you'd be praying for Messiah to come, you'd be praying for faithfulness and for God to remember his covenant Jewish people. But at the same time, you are introduced to something in this phrase that the angel speaks that has nothing to do with any of those things, right? The angel does not respond to national hopes. He will in a moment, but the first thing out of the angel's mouth has nothing to do necessarily with the Messiah. It doesn't have anything to do with necessarily the Jewish hopes of the people, And when commentators read this, you'll notice that you have no quote from Zechariah yet, do you? We don't know exactly what Zechariah has prayed. And this is just beautiful for me because I think it gives you a picture of the humanity of the people within the story. If you're Zechariah and you get a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to draw near to God, to step into the holy place, mere feet... From the ark of the covenant and you are all the way up and you can see the veil that conceals the ark of the covenant from you and you are breathing in the incense and you are as close to God as you're ever going to get and you've been praying something and you've never gotten the answer and month after month and year after year, I get into the opportunity where this is my once in a lifetime opportunity to burn incense and ask God something. What are you going to pray? God, give me a kid. I think Zechariah gets to the end of all of the routine, all of the professionalism associated with being a priest. And I think he goes, and one more thing. Don't you? Don't you think that's him? Now, I don't know if that's true from the text. I could be totally way off. Don't write a book on that. But in the humanity of it, what are you praying? I know what I'm praying. And the answer that comes from the mouth of the angel, I think, gives us insight to the prayer that Zechariah might not even have spoken. It's the prayer that's been on his heart for decades. Do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John. Everything up to this point has been about the present reality. And we've only gotten a window into the past, haven't we? We've only gotten a window into Zechariah and Elizabeth's life by talking about them being advanced in years. And everything the angel is about to say gives you a future prophetic vision of what God will do. Verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness. Isn't that awesome? Say yes. Yes. Isn't it awesome that God says to you, I'm going to give you joy and gladness? Does God care about our emotional well-being? Say yes. He does. He didn't have to put that in there. He could have been, shut up, Zechariah. I'm going to talk about the particular fulfillment of my redemptive plan over the course of all history and all nations and the fact that I'm choosing to bring the forerunner of the Messiah to you at this particular time and place. And all the math geeks would be like, oh, yeah, look at the fulfillment of prophecy and look at all the..." but you get the humanity of it, don't you? You get the the ache of the heart of a barren couple and God going, I see you and you're going to have a son and we're going to call him John and you're going to have great joy and gladness. Not only that, many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. So you're telling me as Zechariah is listening to this angel talking, that you have two things coming together. You have the fulfillment of a particular couple's unanswered prayer and hope come together with many who will rejoice at his birth. Isn't that interesting? But a lot of times for us when we pray, you know where my prayers land? They kind of blend like this, me, me. And what God just did through this angel answering a prayer that Zechariah might not even have mouthed is is put his prayer in the context of the greater story, didn't he? He took this particular painful scenario in their life and he put it in the context of a greater story. He puts it in a social relational context that isn't just Zechariah and Elizabeth, And this is the thing about prayer that I think we all struggle with. I struggle with this too, is that I have a tendency to view God's faithfulness related to my particular situation, not related to what he's doing throughout time and space in the context of multiple people, in the context of multiple places, in the context of his historical activity. See, if you switch that, Listen, if you just start praying like this, if you start praying, give us this day our daily bread before thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because in the Lord's Prayer, they're switched, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then give us this day our daily bread. Where is he putting Zechariah and Elizabeth's pain in the context of the greater story? Why has God said no? No. Because God's doing something that Zechariah and Elizabeth can't see to bring them both joy and gladness and all people who are related to their particular struggle and difficulty. Don't you hate that? That means that my pain and my difficulty and my unanswered prayers might actually be a part of God's greater purposes of working out, bringing more people, more joy, and more gladness on the planet. Is that what you're telling me, church? Say yes. Yes, Yes, that's what you're telling me you're great theologians let's look at who he is, 15 he'll be great before the Lord, now wearing camel's hair eating locusts and honey is not a great socialite standard, those people are not on Instagram those people are weird in fact Jesus says that people thought John had a demon because he didn't eat and drink the way everybody else ate and drank, but how does God view him? great He'll be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. And he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Which means he's going to have not only a peculiar diet, but he's also going to be completely committed to what God is going to do in his day and time. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, which means he has a particular anointing for a particular job. Now, we'll get into John later on. But from the beginning... His life is set aside. His life has a particular calling. Verse 16, let's look at his ministry. He'll turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Which means he's going to have a particular preparatory ministry. Turning people to the Lord their God means it's a ministry of repentance. Paul uses the term in 1 Thessalonians when he says, you turn from idols to serve the living God. So his ministry now begins to turn the hearts of people in the culture, begin to turn the hearts of the Jewish people to bring them back to the Lord their God. Verse 17, he'll go before him, who? The Lord, in the spirit and power of Elijah. So this angel, as he's talking to Zechariah, is inviting Zechariah to consider the historical work of God and to go back all the way to 1 Kings, to the beginning of the prophetic order, to another individual who was anointed by God, another individual who had the power of God rest on him, another individual who went toe-to-toe with Ahab and Jezebel in their day when they tried to turn the people of Israel away toward Baal worship. And he says, here's what John's going to do. And the next thing that the angel said would ping in Zechariah's brain. The next thing that the angel says brings him 400 years prior to a promise that closes the Old Testament. Look at what he says. He'll go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make the ready for the Lord a people prepared. You have a cross reference there? You know where it is? It's Malachi chapter 4. You read it on your own. It's the very last promise of the Old Testament. The very last one. So you're telling me, angel, that God has been faithful to his word for 400 years. You're telling me that I've got an answer of no for my entire marriage. And now at the moment where I enter into the holy place to have a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, to pray a -a once-in-a-lifetime prayer that you, God, are fulfilling both your faithfulness to me and faithfulness to your word for the past 400 years. Is that what you're telling me? Say yes. Yes. Has God forgotten his people? Watch this. Has God forgotten Zechariah and Elizabeth's pain? No. They are bound up together. Verse 18, and Zechariah said to the angel, how will I know this? For I'm an old man. My wife's advancing. <laughs> Come on, I mean. This is one of the reasons like when you read the scriptures, I think the scriptures are so compelling. Because listen, if you had that unanswered prayer and you've had decades of not hearing yes. And you had somebody Bible in hand, who stepped into your life like somebody stepped into Zechariah's life and said, "Let me tell you all of what God's going to do this in this. Let me tell you how much blessing he's going to bring. Let me tell you how much joy he's going to bring. Let me tell you how many people are going to be cared for as a result of this unanswered prayer, that God has waited and waited and waited. Let me tell you how faithful He is to His promise. Let me tell you how much you can trust His word. Let me tell you how intentional He has been to bring you to this very moment, in this very place with this very custom according to this very hour when you are praying that very single prayer would you believe it no you'd say the same thing Zechariah says yeah well, I mean look at my situation angel angel you don't understand all the problems that are going on in my life God you don't see what I see God You don't see how old I am, and I'm not that fast, and she's advanced in years, which means, hey, do you know that means old? (laughs) See, Zechariah, he wants the how. He doesn't want the what. What's the what? You're going to have a child. Yeah, how? Give me some proof. Give me a sign, which he gets. Watch this. And this is one of my favorite verses in all the New Testament, right here. Right here. One of Steve, this is my, one of my favorite coffee cup mug verses. Right here. And the angel answered him I'm, Ga- I'm Gabriel. Don't you love that? Don't you? I mean, if angels could eye roll, I feel like he'd be doing it right here. God in heaven, this guy. I love it. I just love this. This, mo- this is, you should laugh. We have a guy who hasn't been seen for, gosh, 700 years. The last visitation of Gabriel was to Daniel, which gave him a vision about the future. And what's Gabriel doing here now? He's giving Zechariah a vision about the future. And you've got to think, every time Gabriel shows up, and he gives him good news of things that are happening, everybody's rolling their eyes going, yeah, but... You see how old she is? You know what the problem is. Why did we get all of this information? Listen, why did we get all the information ahead of time? Why do we know this before Zechariah says it? It's to show you that God knows your particular time and season better than you do. It's to show you that your perspective on what God is doing isn't the best perspective on what God is doing. And Zechariah wants the how. The angel answered him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. Verse 20. And behold, you will be silent, unable to speak until the day that these things take place. What's the sign? You don't get the joy of speaking about what God is doing because you don't trust his word. That's a whole message in itself, isn't it? You won't be able to speak until the day that these things take place, because you didn't believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, from the holy place, we zoom out. You feel the whole thing zoom in, you feel the whole thing zoom in, then you hope feel the whole thing zoom out. Look at verse 21. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. He'd been in there a long time. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. Typically, when the priests were finished within their duties of caring for the temple, they would come out and they would, uh, they would bless the people of God. And as these priests all step in front of the people of God, in front of the temple, and are prepared to bless the people of God, you have one priest who's in the group who can't say a word. He's unable to speak to them, and they realize that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Now, if you thought it's funny so far, watch this. Verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. Now, we know that's coming. We know Gabriel promised it. But can you imagine being a man who works in the temple, who gets home after his time of service, and he can't speak, and he's got to sign... Somehow, the fact that the thing that they've been praying for decades is about to come true. Not only that, the person that they're about to have is going to fulfill the Jewish hopes that they've been waiting on for 400 years. And then he's got to tell his wife, baby, I promise this time when we're intimate, it's going to happen. And you got to do that whole thing without any words. I can't wait to talk to this couple and go, Elizabeth. (laughs) What was he like when he got home? How did you have that conversation? How did he tell you that this was the time it's going to work? I promise, baby, because I saw (laughs) Whatever it is, that's incredible to me. Thus, uh, verse 24, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden. Now, commentators are twisted up on this. Why does she do this? What captures her attention? They don't know. Nobody knows. She gives no answer. She doesn't tell you the why, she just tells you. She keeps it quiet for five months. You've got to read into it. But I think there's a hint in this for us, the reader, as we read this two millennia later. There's a hint for us just in verse 25. Look at what she says, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Now, if you, if you know, if, maybe if you don't, it, it, there's a spot in the Old Testament that has to do with a woman named Rachel. Rachel and I won't turn there, it's in Genesis chapter 30, you can read it on your own, but the whole narrative of Jacob, Leah, and Rachel is driven by barrenness. It's driven by competition among women who seek to have the heir of their husband and thus be be significant, both in the eyes of the culture and in the eyes of her husband. And at the end of this story, Elizabeth virtually quotes what Rachel, Jacob and quotes what Rachel does and it's this picture ladies when you read the scriptures you know that the stories of women come off the page for you don't they because you can put yourself in those times and in those places feeling the things that the women who were the faithful witnesses that we read about today you can feel the pressures that they feel And this text closes with Elizabeth quoting something that she would have known as a little girl growing up. She would know the stories of the matriarchs of Israel, of the great things that God had done for them in seasons past. She would know the story of Hannah and Elkanah who brought forth Samuel. She would know the story of Samson's parents. She would know the story of Jacob and Rachel and the barrenness that was in their lives. She would know the story of Abraham and Sarah. And at the end of this account, we're brought into Elizabeth's mind and Elizabeth's heart to remind us of God's particular faithfulness to her. Guys, God knows where you are and what is happening in your life. Ladies... God knows where you are and what is happening in your life. So there's lots that I could say, but I want to make one final point as we prepare our hearts for communion. In verse 5, you see how this story starts. See the first thing in verse 5? Says what? Three words. In the days. And we're introduced into History introduced to a certain particular king but by the end of this passage we see the same three words show up again as if to say God starts counting differently than men start counting see God's clock you know what what Gabriel says to Mary just go forward, one, just one, you know, the remainder of this, this chapter. Look at verse 36, 136. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived her a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. What happens in Luke's mind now as we start counting differently, we start marking the places where we have experienced the grace of God in taking away our reproach. Isn't that awesome? That Herod fades in the background. But now what comes forward are the stories of God's people who said, God was faithful to me. See, don't ever miss the, listen, you've got unanswered prayers. I've got unanswered prayers. But I don't want us to lose the opportunity to talk about the ways and times and seasons in our life where God has been faithful to us. We were uh, cleaning out, we were doing like, home, I don't know what you call it, what do we call it, cleaning up stuff, organizing, we were doing home organizing. I don't even know the word. Uh, Yesterday, and uh, I have kept, over the course of my ministry, I have kept handwritten notes. I have a whole stack of them. Uh, it, for just a variety of reasons, a particular evidence of God's providence, particular acknowledgement that God was doing something in our ministry at that particular time, that God met a particular need. And I came across a note that, I, that we had from years ago. And it was a note from somebody who provided for us at a particular time and season in our life. And I pulled it on. I said, I didn't know what this card was. And I opened up the card and there was still a check in there uh, that I had cashed but put back together with the note. And it was, it was just a moment in our life where we recognized that our need God met. And that's why I keep them. Because listen... When I face unanswered prayers, I face the temptation to to ask the same question you do. I'm no different than anybody else in this room. I ask God, what are you doing? Where are you? Do you see our problems? Do you see what our needs are? Do you see what's happening in our lives? Do you see the, the impending struggles that we have? Do you see how this financial pressure isn't getting alleviated the way I want it to? Do you see how this relational tension isn't getting resolved like I'd like it to? And I'm wondering, God, where are you? And what are you doing? And I need these stories of God's word to come back to to remember that God knows every single thing about every single time, about every single place, about every single struggle, about every single mundane routine thing that is happening in my life, and he hasn't forgotten me. And I need these evidences throughout the course of my life to come back to. I need the scriptures to come back to to remind me that he hasn't forgotten me, that he hasn't abandoned me, that my unanswered prayers are a part of a greater, more glorious plan to bring God glory and to bring people joy. Amen? That's the story. And I need that reminder because otherwise I get bitter, I get angry, I get frustrated, and I need these stories like this to be be reminded of God's particular faithfulness to me, to our family, to our church, and in this text, God's particular faithfulness to his word. Because God has not forgotten you and God has not forgotten the promises that he's made to you. Amen. Father, as we prepare our hearts for communion, we come to you as dependent people, as people who are prone to wander, prone to doubt, prone to uncertainty, prone to not understanding the things that you are doing in our life in, this, in these seasons and times. Even today, Father, for the people who are in the room who wonder where you are and what you are doing, I pray that you give them great hope by this text. I pray that you would give them encouragement through your word, that they would be reminded again of your faithfulness and your providence and your sustaining grace that has brought us even to this hour and to this moment. So, Father, for those unanswered prayers, I pray that when those answers come, we would be people of faithfulness to be able to speak about your kindness to us, that you have fulfilled the promises that are concerning to us. That we are not a forgotten people, but you love us and you know us and you care for us. So, our Father, those truths, I pray, would penetrate into the deepest parts of our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.